Welcome to Asking for a Friend with me, your host, Katrina Buffard. I'm a clinical sexologist, psychotherapist, and sexuality researcher. And this podcast covers any and every topic relating to sex, intimacy, or relationships that you might feel a little too embarrassed to ask about. This season of Asking for a Friend is sponsored by Desire, South Africa's leading sexual health and wellness store. For a lovely little discount, stay tuned until the end of this episode. Have you ever stopped to think what extraordinary sex might look like? Well, here's a spoiler for you. It has nothing to do with the amount of sex we have and everything to do with the quality of sex we're having. And so today I got to speak to Professor Peggy Kleinplatz, who is probably the world's leading expert on this topic. She is a professor of medicine and a clinical professor of psychology at the University of Ottawa. She teaches human sexuality at the university and is the director of sex and couples therapy training. She's also a clinical psychologist. She's pretty prolific in the field of sexual health and research. She's highly respected and accomplished as a clinician and her work on optimal sexual experiences is not only exciting, but it's groundbreaking too. For myself, as a practitioner researcher, speaking to Peggy has truly been a highlight of my career and I hope that you are able to take away from this conversation that what we need in order to have extraordinary sex is not bells and whistles and toys and swinging from chandeliers, but simply coming home to connect and work with what we've already got at our fingertips. Peggy, it's a real honor to be speaking to you. You 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 come up in so many of my conversations. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking about a conversation I've had with Emily Nagoski about you and a conversation I was having with a colleague here in South Africa about you a couple of weeks ago. I, I really I feel it's it's a it's a privilege to speak to you. And uh, I'm excited to learn from you today as, as much as I'm excited for my listeners here in South Africa and around the world to learn from you. Well, thank you. I'm really honored to be with you today. Peggy, what was it about, um, you know, extraordinary sex that got you excited and got you researching this topic? Well, I was trained in experiential psychotherapy by its founder, Dr. Alvin Armar. And that meant that I was always focused on the positive and on potential rather than trying to fix dysfunctional problems. So that rather than focusing on taking bad sex and making it not so bad, throughout my career, I've been interested in taking people from wherever they are and helping them to fulfill their highest potential erotically and otherwise. But in the 2003 academic year, one of the students in an undergraduate class on human sexuality kept on raising her hand and saying, well, you say the studies say this, but what I've read in Cosmo says blah, blah. And what I've read in Vogue says blah, blah. And what it says in Maxim and Men's Health is. And this very curious student, then named Dana Menard, now Dr. Menard, really excited me about inviting her to join my research team. And... I am the director of the Optimal Sexual Experiences Research Team at the University of Ottawa. Dana applied to 
go to grad school with me supervising her to study optimal sexual experiences empirically. Because what we know clinically, based on one client after another over the decades of clinical experience that most of us have, might or might not have corresponded to what we would find if we actually studied people who were having fulfilling sex empirically on a bigger scale. So I said, hey, you want to know the truth? You want to know if it's the same as what you see represented in the magazines you read or internet porn? Let's do it. And so we did. I uh, I know the answer, obviously, but I, I guess the answer to that question is no, it, it is not the same as in what the magazines say and what porn shows our sex to be. Fortunately, in real life, the people who are having sexual experiences that they self-define as wonderful, remarkable, magnificent, are infinitely more interesting than the stuff we see described um, in the mainstream media or in porn. It's more subtle, it's more nuanced, lower, it's more erotic. It's not about what's going on between the legs, it's what's going on between the ears and what's going on in the interaction between the two or more people. And if what we see in the mainstream media and in mainstream porn is that sex is for the young, beautiful, heterosexual, and able-bodied, no, no, anybody can have magnificent sex and no two experiences are alike. I'm so glad that you've emphasized a couple of points there. In some work I've done lately, there have been a lot of conversations um, between myself and, and peers around how other people are left out of the conversation. And unfortunately, research very often and conversations very often are focused on heterosexual, cisgendered people and able-bodied people. And what you've just said really has struck a chord with me because I, I, I almost want to emphasize the point of what you just said is that anybody, no matter what your body looks like or how it functions, no matter the type of relationship you're in or the partner that you choose, every person is capable and is able to experience an optimal sexual experience and have extraordinary sex. Yes, and I have the data to prove it. I mean, based on my clinical experience before Dana even became my grad student, I knew that some of the most interesting people in my clientele were the people who'd had pretty good sex for much of their lives, and then something happened. Um, somebody developed diabetes, somebody had a stroke, someone was in an accident and suffered a disability. And they'd had to find new ways of revisioning sex. And that was what led me to think when we started our empirical data collection to recruit people who were in their 60s, 70s, and 80s who'd been with the same partner or partners for at least 25 years, whether it was straight or LGBTQ um, relationships, and to ask them what they learned about what makes these experiences magnificent. And 
We also interviewed people who were sexual and gender minorities and found that all these people who had been forced to live outside the heteronormative box had learned to revision sex and sexuality itself in order to arrive at the kind of sex that was extraordinary. I think that so often when we stick to a script or expect sex to look like something we've seen or heard elsewhere rather than experienced, or when we are placed or place ourselves or our partners into that box, it it really takes away from us being able to engage with and discover what what extraordinary sex is. I, I couldn't agree more strongly. You've just put your finger on the right word, discover. So to the extent that we walk in with preconceived notions of what sex should look like, let alone what great sex should look like, that's what stands in the way of discovering one's own erotic potentials and one's own capacity for erotic intimacy with another. So I guess then I, I obviously, and I know my listeners are probably on the edge of their seats, you know, they know the title of this episode is Extraordinary Sex. Can we please delve in to what you've found, what you, the answers that you've got from all of these people that you spoke to about what, what is extraordinary sex? How can we have it? Absolutely. So what we found in our first study beginning in 2005, in the course of interviewing dozens and dozens of people, was that there were eight components that were common across people whose demographics might look very different, but whose sexual experiences had these commonalities. And they were as follows. The first one is about embodiment, about being fully alive in the moment and absorbed by the moment. Now, some people have read our stuff over the last 15 years or so and said, oh, that's mindfulness. And it's, that's what you mean by mindfulness. I mean, mindfulness is a term that's been borrowed by psychology, but it's been around for thousands of years in the practice and discipline of ancient Hindu and Buddhist practitioners. And those yogis weren't at the level of mindfulness that you can learn in a one-weekend mindfulness-based CBT workshop. So here we're talking about being absorbed at a very high level, not about you know, helping our clients to avoid distraction, but such that an atom bomb could fall and you wouldn't notice it because the sex is so compelling and you're so fully absorbed, nothing could possibly distract you. That was the first one. The second one is about being engaged with your partner, being so fully in the moment, but where two hearts beat is one. And again, this is not the stuff that sex therapists generally think about at such a level of intensity, but it is the stuff that poets write about and that songwriters write about. It's where I 
can't tell where your skin ends and my skin begins. As if the two of us are sharing one body. The third one is about authenticity. It's about being able to be myself, to look myself in the eye and know I'm sharing my inner self with you, that I'm emotionally naked. Fourth is about vulnerability, where (laughs) it's one thing for me to be emotionally naked alone in a room. It's another thing for me to be emotionally naked while letting you see me, while I'm letting myself surrender myself to you so that you can see me for who I am. Making sense to you so far? It's, it's making absolute sense. And I'm listening and enthralled by by each and every one of the, the factors you've, you've mentioned so far. And I'll go further and thank you. The fifth is about what you just said, listening. It's about empathic communication. It's not just the verbal stuff that we are all taught about in graduate school, um, I statements, paraphrasing, validating. Of course, it's about accurate um, listening and speaking. But beyond that, it's about touch. It's about touch as a form of empathic communication. It's about touching so as to really feel under the skin and about allowing oneself to be touched so as to be felt. I'm going to change the subject just slightly. Have you had your COVID vaccines yet? Thankfully, I have. And I had it quite a while before I got COVID. So I'm very pro-vaccines. Wonderful. Me too. So think about the way one's body tenses when someone comes near you with a large syringe. Your whole body gets tight. It's not that you're against the vaccine. It's quite simply that when you know someone's about to do something to you that hurts, your whole body tightens, right? Absolutely. Now think about the way your body relaxes when someone's about to touch you in a way that you find desirable and appealing. Your whole body sighs so that somebody really can to know the person within by touching you metaphorically and literally in a very deep way. So this is about the metaphorical interpenetration of two people who are willing to let themselves be known, which brings us to our next component about vulnerability and surrender. Sometimes people would talk about it's as if the two of us were holding hands as if we as if we were jumping off a cliff together. So that required a fair bit of courage. And that meant our seventh component, exploration and interpersonal risk-taking. I mean, 
unfortunately, as you will know, in the world of psychology, and especially sexology, when we talk about risk-taking, we're talking about the bad stuff. How do I avoid unwanted pregnancies? How do I avoid STIs? We have to practice safer sex. Well, this is a different kind of risk-taking. This is about emotional, interpersonal risk-taking. This is about the two of us using sexuality itself as a vehicle for personal growth and interpersonal development. And last but not least, if you put all of those together, we found that that led to experiences that were downright transformative, that made people feel that they were part of something bigger. And often people would start talking about a a gift from God, and we'd say, oh, uh, and what what religion do you practice? And they'd say, no, 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 I'm, I'm not religious. I just, I can't find other words to describe what it feels like to have a moment that's so transcendent. So I borrowed the language of religion, which we thought was pretty cool. To almost have a, a holy moment to say, like, this is so powerful, this is so transcendent, this is so... It, it just, I mean, you describing it and describing what extraordinary sex is, it's, I've even been left just this feeling, I must say, sitting here of just softness and lightness and ease, because while you've been describing what your your research has found, everything from embodiment to touching so as to really feel or to be felt to that exploration, that interpersonal risk-taking. It's just, it's it's a strange experience that I've had, but I, I just almost feel the sense of lightness, the sense of softness. And Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> I, I, I imagine that, well, actually, you could tell me, when, when you heard these things from your participants, what did you feel? <laughs> I felt blessed. I felt absolutely blessed. I mean, if I died tomorrow, one of the great blessings of my life will have been having done these interviews and learning from people who are so willing to share deeply of their own erotic experiences. I mean, when I was in grad school, my number one goal was to get those funny letters after my name so I could be licensed so I'd never have to do research again. I really did not like experimental (laughs) research. And this was nothing like that. I mean, my team does phenomenologically-based research. And the act of getting inside other people's experiences by virtue of their sharing so willingly of experiences that were so meaningful was just amazing and mind-blowing for me as the researcher. I'm so grateful. I, I'm i a phenomenological researcher as well. And, and just for those who are listening, Peggy and I are very interested in making meaning of people's experiences. I'm doing my own doctoral research um, in people's stories, women's stories um, of overcoming sexual pain. And the funny thing is I've had a lot of conversations of late between, um, you know, students and um, colleagues around 
learning and and changing um, protocols and processes, procedures and treatment approaches. And I've got a very, I've always held on to, and I've got a very strong belief that if we want to understand something, we can't go to, well, it's not that we can't go to, but we shouldn't always jump to an expert, but we should actually jump to the people who are experiencing it. So, you know, if we want to teach people about, um, you know, trans rights or trans healthcare or trans mental health, we need to learn first from those who are trans and then from the experts who work with trans people. So I love that you went and spoke to people who said they were having extraordinary sex, not just, you know, the experts perhaps that Cosmo and Maxim and all of those other magazines reach out to to ask what does extraordinary sex looks like, look like. I really find it powerful, and you'll know this as a phenomenological researcher, when we hear the stories and we understand the meaning that people make from their own experiences, not just from what the textbook will tell us. I'm so thrilled to hear that you're doing phenomenological research on women's experiences of pain. That's a really important contribution you're making to literature. I, I, I feel a bit emotional with you saying that because that, wow, I'm, I'm big on words and that means a lot to hear from you. Well, I'm, I'm quite serious about it. I mean, for your listeners who might not be familiar with phenomenological research, the people that one chooses to interview in this kind of research model are the people who are known as the key informants. And those are the experts. These are people who have firsthand experience of the phenomenon that you want to understand better. And so you select people. This is not about random sampling. This is deliberately seeking out people who could share with you of their personal experience so that you can learn from them about the structure of that experience and the nature of that experience and what it feels like to be those people whom we refer to as the key informants. So in the book that I wrote with Dana, now Dr. Menard, Magnificent Sex, Lessons from Extraordinary Lovers, it's our key informants. It's the 75 people that we interviewed who we were so indebted to that we wanted to tell their stories. And the extraordinary lovers of our titles are the key informants of our phenomenological interviews. Yeah, they're real people having real experiences of extraordinary sex. And, and the irony is in your work, with women who are in pain and my work with individuals who are having the stuff that dreams are made of is that most of the time people don't ask questions of the ones from whom we would most like to learn. And yet they're the only ones who are in a position to really teach us what we want to know. I couldn't agree with you more. From one phenomenological researcher to another, I really, I really couldn't agree with you more. I think that so much of, of what you've learned and discovered and, and found through your own research is, is really, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to put my finger on the right word. You know, it's, it's strange, Peggy. It's, it's groundbreaking, but it's also not. And, and I, let, me, let me caveat what I mean. Your research is groundbreaking because 
it's going to the people who are having the experiences, number one. But two, it's actually, as you've done in your book, putting out there the information so that others who want to have these experiences can learn from it. That That is groundbreaking in, in this field of sex research, where unfortunately it actually is quite a young field, especially when it comes to the research component of it. But then it's not groundbreaking because the things that you found, these are things that we have access to for free every day in our lives, in our partnerships, that I guess it's one of those situations where some people might often think, well, what, that, that was obvious. Like, why didn't I think of that? That actually makes a lot of sense now that, that, that that's been said. D- does that make sense? Am I, am I being clear? You're being crystal clear, and I, I couldn't agree with you more strongly. I mean, when we first started presenting the very first phase of our research, you know, on our components of optimal sexual experience, that's, you know, more than 15 years ago now, people would say, oh, no, that this would be colleagues at conferences saying, oh, no, uh, you've just created another bar that people will have to reach. Don't we have enough hoops for our, our clients to jump through? And it, it's, we had to explain, no, no, you have this backwards. This is not about trying to attain some predetermined standard. It's quite the opposite. What we found was that people had to look within in order to discover their own capacity for erotic fulfillment. That's the place to start. So what we described were merely the commonalities in their experiences, but each experience was distinctive and unique to that individual and to that couple on that occasion. No two experiences are alike. So, no, it's not as if we want to tell people, here is what your sex life should look like. It's the only way you're going to discover what is magnificent for you is by turning within and sharing with one another in order to attain your own potentials now. And of course, most of the book focuses on the development and the pathways towards your own capacity for erotic fulfillment over the course of a lifetime. Whatever seems to be your peak today will look quite different from the next peak you attain 10 years from now. In other words, you know, my hope is to one day get really old. <laughs> and and get, get really old and, and move through the, the different experiences that we can have and how we have to, to do that together as a couple in the different seasons of yeah, our life. Exactly. I mean, in my fantasies, my final words on my deathbed are, what's next? <laughs> I'm not surprised that you've done so much in, in your life already and you've contributed so much to the field and you are, you know, as highly regarded as you are. If, if that's the attitude you have living, I, I, I absolutely love it. I, I, you've, you. you've, you've made me think of a point um, uh, you know, stemming from research, uh, previous research, which is that I think people are often surprised to hear me say that the best sex is actually being had by people who've been together for a while. So it's not these, you know, it's not actually at the start of the relationship. It's not the casual hookups. It's it's couples who've been together for some time and who have developed intimacy and who have developed a, a way of sharing and communication. But to to add on to that, I mean, there are are points from your research that you found 
such as, you know, this, this touching so as to really feel and to be felt, that is one that really stands out for me. But so does the interpersonal risk taking to really, to really let yourself go into it, to allow yourself to go into it, but also to let it in. I think often we think of letting go as, as, as a one-way destiny, as a one-way journey, but it's also about letting in. All right. So I'm going to divert us back to your research about women who experience pain during sex. And I think I started writing 25 years ago about what was then called vaginismus. So pain at the vaginal opening that makes penetration painful, difficult, even impossible sometimes. And I started writing about that back then based on experience with my clients as a form of guarding against pain, as a form of saying metaphorically, stay away from me, don't try to penetrate me, as a way of saying, stop. You know, the gynecology textbooks for about the last hundred years have all said that when you see a woman with vaginismus, even if you can't insert a speculum to do a pelvic exam, you can just look between her legs and you'll see that the lips around her vaginal opening are poised as if it's a mouth saying no. And even though all the textbooks say that, teach gynecologists how to diagnose a woman even though you can't actually get inside of her, it hasn't occurred to them that those lips might be metaphorically saying, no, don't touch me, stay away, I don't want this. And if there's one thing that pulls together what you're studying with what I'm studying, it's about how loudly our bodies can speak with messages and if we're only poised to listen, we can be responsive, literally, figuratively, metaphorically. And too much of what, I'm going to be nasty to our colleagues. Is that okay? I mean, sure. <laughs> okay. Too much of what some of our colleagues have done historically is tried to teach people to respond mechanistically even though the feeling isn't there. What defines these extraordinary lovers is that they did pay attention to the messages from within and the messages from each other. Sometimes that requires a certain level of personal maturity as well as interpersonal development in order to be able to really read each other and to be able to say, yeah, now I'm really into it, now not so much. Let's save this for another day. I think it's such an important point you've made about tuning into to what our bodies are saying. I think we are so, so much in our intellectual thinking minds. Um, I had a conversation yesterday. I was on a, on a, I was a, I attended a SAR this weekend, which you will know what it is, but for my listeners, it's a sexual attitude readjustment or reassignment seminar where um, sexual health professionals have to undergo this training. Um, and I believe should, as I'm doing it, should do it throughout their training because there are always new and interesting things that are, are coming up. And, um, 
And we were a group of 40 something professionals from all over the world, everything, everywhere from Australia to Japan, to Taiwan, to Europe, South Africa, um, to the US and, and to South America, I mean, really across the globe. And one of the things that was really evident was how actually quite challenging it was even for a group of, of sexual health professionals to get out of their heads in terms of the intellect and get into their bodies into the feelings of what some of these, um, some of the media we were watching and some of the speakers we were hearing from, what it was bringing up in us. And I think, you know, even as a, a psychological professional, I often find it very hard to get out of my intellectual brain and into my body to recognize what it is that I'm feeling. And yet our body is very often the first place that we will experience distress or joy or excitement or pleasure. And yet we often don't realize that. We only, we only pay attention to what we think or, or what's going through our mind rather than the way, you know, if we're talking about extraordinary sex, our body is softening or our body is tensing up. And as we talk about these women, their bodies are literally saying no, as you've said. And our bodies can say yes too, but we, we often don't recognize that. Yes. I mean, if, if you've read the whole book, you know that based on the research on the components of optimal sexual experience, and then later, following seven years of doing research on what are the factors that help to bring about magnificent sex, we developed a therapy paradigm for couples who are having sexual difficulties. And one of the mottos that we've brought into the therapy paradigm that we've now been using for the last eight years or so is lose your mind and come to your senses. A phrase that we borrowed from the work of Fritz Perls, founder of Gestalt Psychotherapy from 1971. He was not a sex therapist. And yet that motto, lose your mind and come to your senses, seems to fit with what our clients can benefit from so dramatically. And it works. I mean, as we're doing our group therapy, and I, I quote those words, you can see people die. They just let go. It's like, oh, so I'm not supposed to feel things and function in particular predetermined ways if that's not what I feel from within. No. On the contrary, if you try to get your body to perform mechanistically while ignoring the messages from within, your body will quite rightly rebel. You can't say no with words. Your body will say no metaphorically for you. Those aren't dysfunctions. Those are messages. Pay attention. And and for healthcare providers listening, pay attention to to somebody you're consulting with, you're working with, because I, I think that that's, you know, often, uh, yeah, it's why I'm doing my research and, and I, I won't delve into it too much, but I do want to repeat the quote you've just said, because I think it's incredibly beautiful. And, and while you, as you said, the context isn't, it wasn't in the context of sex therapy or, or optimal sexual experiences, but it's very fitting, lose your mind and come to your senses. I think that's incredibly powerful. I Having extraordinary sex is obviously something 
I have no doubt every single human being would want to strive for. But we also know that, you know, there are a lot of people who may not ever want to really have sex, uh, may not really be interested in sex. There may also be people in partnerships who think it's the last thing they'd ever want to have. And, and that often speaks to, to the partnership, to the psychological, I don't know, uh, well-being of the relationship or the relational well-being. But I think to, to really emphasize what you've said in our conversation today, it's that there are, there are many ways in which people can engage sexually. But in order to have this extraordinary sex, in order to have the sex that, as you said, I love that, the sex of like the experience of, of your dreams, we have to really get in touch with ourselves and with our partners. We really have to, to engage in true connection. We really have to be courageous, which I actually really love that features in there. Um, I think Brene Brown would be thrilled to hear that vulnerability, courage, surrender, they're all coming up in, in um, what it means to have extraordinary sex. I know I am. And that realistically, this is something that anybody who wants to be sexual can achieve, but it it doesn't just happen. It does actually, I think this is the, the crux of what I'm trying to say, that extraordinary sex does not just happen. It actually takes effort and work. Yes, I mean, we have a whole chapter where we dispel a myth that magnificent sex is something that happens naturally and spontaneously. It most certainly does require devoting oneself to it. it if you're doing it right, you know, it will take effort, but it shouldn't feel like work. Um, but it's like anything else that one would want to cultivate. Um, a lovely garden. A gourmet meal. I mean, you could walk into McDonald's. Uh, I'm a vegetarian and I never had uh, a meal at McDonald's, but I'm told that one of the nice things about McDonald's is that you can walk into any McDonald's on earth and you will get an identical hamburger and that it's you know, reliable and predictable and edible. Very different from the quality of a meal that someone who knows you has prepared just for you that incorporates your favorite foods prepared for your palate with the right combination of herbs and spices and colors and flavors arranged artfully on a plate so that even before you taste it, you can tell the effort that was put into creating something that would seem delectable for you. It, yeah. it, it's speaking to pleasure for me. The things in life that can bring us pleasure often take, take work and intentionality and presence. So we can, you know, as you, I love that you brought food into this. I use food as an analogy all the time in relation to sex you can go to a McDonald's and get a hamburger and you're, you know, I love the way you described it. It was the most unsexy thing, like predictable, reliable. These are not sexy things and, and we don't want sex to be predictable and reliable and, you know, consistent across the board because those things are often not so sexy and not so exciting for us. But 
pleasure and actually experiencing that pleasure means to to really be there to really show up to really appreciate and actually think this is for me a big a big part of of my work and I'm sure yours too but actually allow yourself give yourself permission to experience that joy that pleasure that extraordinary sex I couldn't agree more yes it's about surrendering and letting go and as one of the members of our team talked about years ago uh, Dr. Megan Campbell about the willingness to go there and that's a choice I mean not everybody has to have this experience not everybody will want this experience but for those who want to eventually get there it is about the willingness to open oneself up there are choices to be made at every step along the way and different pathways there aren't the same pathways for every individual as you well know i mean there's been this debate in literature in sexologists and couples therapists about whether the right way is through attachment, is a secure, stable, safe relationship, or through differentiation. That is autonomy, maturity at the individual level, being able to stand on one's own two feet. So is it autonomy? That is differentiation or is it attachment? And we now have the evidence that answers the question, yes, differentiation and attachment. But for some people, the focus in the pathway towards magnificent sex will be more about my growth. And for others, the focus will be more about our relationship. And for Different couples, it might be first one and then the other, but in different sequences and pathways. As one goes higher and higher, moving from one plateau to the next peak and so on. There isn't one right pathway. There are multiple pathways for different individuals in different relationships in different sequences. They're all good. I love that. They're all good. So, so Peggy, to, to kind of round off our conversation and, and bring it to a close, the most valuable thing that you've learned from your research that you'd want other people to know, is there one thing or are there many, many things? Well, for many years, people asked us, okay, so you've studied these 75 people and you now know about magnificent sex among extraordinary lovers. So what? And for me, as a therapist, the so what was an empirical question. Does this have anything to teach the rest of us? The couples that you and I see who are struggling and the most common presenting problem in the world of sex therapy is low desire, no desire, low frequency, no frequency or distress about sexual disparity between the people in a relationship. That's the thing that was bringing couples into my office for decades. And the big empirical question for us was, hmm, has everything we learned brought anything to teach the rest 
of us. And if there's one thing that we learned, it was that sometimes low desire is evidence of good judgment. There's a lot of bad sex out there. Sometimes those people who walk into my office saying, if I never had sex again, I wouldn't miss it. Oh, I've got those, are, lots of those. Yeah, that, those are your bread and butter and mine. People who think there's something wrong with them for having low sexual desire, whereas in fact, what we have learned is that maybe people should pay attention to their lack of desire. Maybe their lack of desire is because the quality of sex they're having is not desirable sex. And that the treatment, quote-unquote, for low desire is creating desirable sex. So I would encourage your listeners to pay attention to the quality of sexual relations that people don't want. There's a message in there. Maybe people should be holding out for creating the kind of sex that's worth wanting. And the therapy that we've developed starts with that premise. And our group therapy is designed to help couples create sex worth wanting and not to settle for anything less. And I think the the, the last thing I, I want to say to finish off this is that you have just expressed explicitly, and as I do all the time, it is quality, not quantity. The amount of sex you have has got nothing to do with sexual satisfaction. It has everything to do with dissatisfaction if there's pressure and expectation there. So, Peggy, you've got, I mean, I've actually owned one of your your books, New Directions in Sex Therapy, for a very, very long time. Um, I think I got it just just after I qualified because I, or while I was, yeah, actually, I think I got it while I was doing my training. which was in 2012, goodness, long time ago. Um, and you've, you've recently, very recently, I mean, just as the pandemic hit, I think it was, you released your book, Magnificent Sex Lessons from Extraordinary Lovers. And I, I want to highly recommend both of these books to my listeners. I will link them in the, in the title, the description of the, of the podcast episode. And Peggy, I want to I thank you so much for chatting with me today and chatting to my listeners. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lovely experience. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to this podcast and continue learning about some incredible and fascinating topics that we need to know more and talk more about. You can subscribe and follow this podcast on your favorite platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you would rate and review it. This episode was sponsored by Desire. Desire believes that sexual health is not just about the latest sex toy, but about using products to improve one's overall sexual health and well-being. For 15% off, use the code FOREFRIEND.